I missed an opportunity to make a clever joke about the Lord of the Rings, Mordor's, uh, and I'm sad about that, but I was not clever enough to come up with anything, so you missed out on that. Or, you're welcome? I don't know. Um, doors. We talked about doors last week and how important they are. Obviously, you believe strongly in doors because I am sure that your house has at least one. Doors are necessary for entrance. So if you didn't have a door on your house, you couldn't get in, which is the ironic thing. Uh, but they also allow for access or for that access to be conditional, locked in this case. We talked about the church last week. Uh, we talked about uh, the Passover um, the door of blood, the lin- a spread on the doorpost and on the lintel, as well as the door of the ark. And this week we're talking about three different doors. Three different doors. And really, these three doors have a similarity as well as the previous three doors. They pertained to a similarity. In this case, there is a theme along with these three. The first door, as if you have your outline with you, is the door of the temple. This was a a pretty elaborate door. In fact, it's probably the most elaborate door on practically any list. And I picked the temple in particular, not the tabernacle, though the door would be similar. The door of the temple. In Leviticus chapter 16, he's talking about the door of the tabernacle. And in 16 in verse 1, he says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. He gives you some context of what just took place. The Lord spoke to Moses concerning... The situation in the tabernacle. Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, had just taken strange fire into the holy place and had been destroyed by fire. And with that as a background, he says here, And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place, inside the veil, before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of the young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. He shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash and with a linen turban. He shall be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore, he shall wash his body with water and put them on. Then he's going to take the sacrifice and he's going to... Give the sacrifice for his own family, his children, and him and his spouse to atone for their sins, it says. And one ram as a burnt offering. And then, after he has atoned for himself, he will make atonement for the people. Now, this door of the temple, and it's similar in both cases. The door of the temple would have been much larger because the temple was significantly larger. But even the door of the tabernacle was made of a giant, multi-layered fabric. It was ridiculously heavy, but in the end, it was still just fabric. And so was the door of the temple or the door of the tabernacle, either one. Was it really to keep men out? And I suspect the answer in the long run is no. No, it wasn't really meant to keep men out. It wasn't designed to do that. There were no locks on the door. There was nothing that would keep a person from simply pushing the fabric aside and going in. In fact, they did that regularly as they were traveling with the tabernacle. They had to because they had to take down the building, the structure, and transport it from place to place. And even this giant multi-layered fabric would not keep anyone out. It would not restrict access. It was 
simply there to demonstrate the limitations of the area. What kept people out was their respect for God's holiness. That's what kept people out, or the fear of death. One of the two. Either the fear of death, because some of them witnessed the death of Nadab and Abihu, or heard stories about Nadab and Abihu and the death of these individuals who did what they were told not to do. So either the fear of death or the respect for God's holiness is what kept men out when they weren't supposed to be in. And did it secure God in as the ark secured the beasts inside of the ark? That door kept humanity in for the time being? Well, no, but that's how it was perceived. The door of the, the tabernacle or the door of the temple was regularly perceived as a limiting boundary to God. But that fabric, in the same way it couldn't actually limit access to a human being, it certainly did not demonstrate the boundaries of the God of heaven and earth. In fact, in, in Jeremiah chapter 7, in Jeremiah chapter 7, one of the issues with the southern two tribes, the northern ten tribes have gone into captivity. We talked about this before, the the northern ten tribes being called the kingdom of Israel after, after Rehoboam had not handled things appropriately and Solomon had led the people in unrighteousness. And part of the penalty was that God was dividing the kingdom. And so Jeroboam took the northern ten tribes and very quickly through a long line of bad kings, they went into Assyrian captivity as punishment. And along comes the southern two tribes, not learning the lesson of their northern counterparts, their sisters in the north, and the destruction that comes upon them. They continue in their ungodliness. We'll read Isaiah, in fact, this uh, uh, tonight. Isaiah 1 talks considerably about that. And what we have here in Jeremiah 7 is a warning. In verse 4, if you look here, he says, Do not trust in these lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. And it's not immediately clear what they're talking about. This would be a chant that many of the Israelites would claim. And we see something similar when Jesus comes on the scene and he talks about swearing oaths. And there are some who would swear oaths by the gold in the temple. And that's one you were supposed to keep because the gold in the temple is sacred. But if you swore an oath by the temple itself, then that's not that important because the gold is what's important, not the temple itself. And that's ridiculous. Jesus portrays it as such. But for many, they relied on the temple. They said, the temple will stand. The temple will stand. The temple will stand. No one will ever breach the temple. And so when the Babylonians came, and they were predicted to have come, and Jeremiah told them they're supposed to give up and yield to the oncoming army, many of them hid and fled into Jerusalem behind the walls. And they said, the walls of Jerusalem will hold. Well, they didn't. And then they said, ah, the door of the temple will hold. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. And they said it three times, so it made them feel confident, I guess. And the temple fell too. And that's what Jeremiah is telling them. He's predicting what these people are going to do. He says, for if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, or walk after other gods to your hurt, 
Then I will cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I give you, that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered to do all of these abominations? You think I'm going to protect you here while you're doing these abominable things? Do you think your closeness to the Ark of the Covenant will save you? And look, look, he goes on. He's like, you ought to learn your lesson from history. He says, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I even I have sent it, says the Lord. But go now to my place, which was in in Shiloh. Where I set my name at the first and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. Now, that takes a little bit of history, now doesn't it? He's referencing some events that took place in the past. Specifically, he says to these Israelites who are going to rely on the temple to protect them. Because God's not going to let his temple fall into the hands of heathen. He's not going to let his temple be destroyed by abominable individuals. And yet... In 1 Samuel chapter 4, the Israelites came up with this genius idea, and I say that as sarcastically as I can, to take the Ark of the Covenant into battle to force God to give them victory. Because God will certainly not allow the Ark of the Covenant to fall into the hands of the awful Philistines. Uh, Yeah, he did. And he took vengeance upon the Philistines. He used it as an opportunity to remind the Philistines of who has power and who actually does it? But the Israelites were defeated that day, and the Ark of the Covenant was taken from them. And you know what never happens in Shiloh again? Shiloh was the city which the temple or the tabernacle was established. It was built there. It was where God put his name for the time being until the day that David and subsequently his son Solomon would build the temple in Jerusalem. But until that day, Shiloh was where the tabernacle was constructed. And then the Israelites in 1 Samuel 4, before Saul became king, they took the Ark of the Covenant with them into battle, lost it to the Philistines. They inevitably gave it back, but no one put it back in Shiloh. And so for all of Saul's reign and most of David's reign, the Ark of the Covenant is not in the tabernacle of God in Shiloh. So he's referencing, do you not remember what happened to Shiloh? Because when the news came back that Phinehas and Hophni, the sons of Eli, the next priests in line to take over for their father, Eli, when they found out that they were dead, Eli fell backwards off the cart and died. They lost all of their leadership effectively at once. The only person left, a young man named Samuel, which works out really well for them in the long run, but... The tabernacle was without the Ark of the Covenant for several decades. Why? Because the Israelites did not realize that God was the power that was giving them victory, not the Ark of the Covenant. And that you could not wheedle God into doing what you wanted simply because you had, in your mind, control over his holy place. And there in Jeremiah, that's exactly what... Jeremiah is reminding them of. That's exactly what God is trying to get them to see 
And that's exactly what we need to see today. There are many people who tie righteousness or salvation to this location, to this place. They say, well, I went to services. And I'm sure there are going to be many people in the judgment who their claim to their relationship with God is I went to church. Maybe frequently, maybe regularly. But it's not about going to church. Because it's about being the church. If you are not the church, not in the building and not usually in the building. I mean, if you are not the church, the called out of Christ, if you are not the kingdom that his dear son purchased with his own blood, then you are in the same state as those individuals who are sitting in the temple thinking the temple will protect me. The temple didn't protect them. Because it wasn't about that place, it wasn't about that building, it wasn't about that structure or the gold in that structure. It was about the spiritual relationship that they had given up with their God. And you see that in the obedience. The obedience was important. Here in Leviticus 16, it's especially important and noticed because Nadab and Abihu just died for their disobedience. And what does he go back to? Do the things that you're supposed to do according to the way that I have instructed you to do them. You need to wear the appropriate garments and you need to be in the right place. Now he's talking to an Old Testament priest. But we are New Testament priests. And so while the, the responsibilities aren't the same, committing to God's holiness is the same. Doing things God's way and respecting the, the prescribed methods and motives that we are to have are definitely in line with the way that they should have learned. And that this is necessary for salvation. Passing through this door was how they reached atonement for his and his family's sins and then ultimately the sins of the people. And the way we access the blood of Christ is to come through that door. The door of, as we talked about last week, of Jesus. It's what allows for that atonement for sin that the blood of Christ can be Applied appropriately. But obedience is necessary. Obedience is necessary. We see a second door in the tomb, which is really just a big rock. A door none the same. Or a door all the same. A door nonetheless. I messed those two metaphors up. Weird. So the door of the tomb. In Matthew chapter 27, verses 64 through 66, Jesus has died and his apostles, or two of two individuals, who cared about him, who had opportunity, Joseph of Arimathea. And John tells us, not just Joseph of Arimathea, but Nicodemus as well. They take Jesus down and they put his body in a tomb. It's a rush job. And we'll look at that in just a second. But overnight, they were worried. Well, over the course of a day, in fact, because the next day was the Sabbath. They were worried, the leaders were worried that someone would steal his body because he talked about a resurrection. And so they go... To the person who has charge over him. Matthew chapter 27. Look at verse 64. Look what they ask. He says. And if you go back to I guess 62. On the next day which followed the day of preparation. The chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate saying. Sir we remember while he was still alive. How that deceiver said after three days I will rise. Well they got that right. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day. Lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, so that the last deception will be worse than the first. 
I love this. It's so funny to me. They have entirely given up on the idea that Jesus is the Son of God to the degree that they are going to help secure the truth. Not get in the way of it. They're going to help secure the truth. This is exactly what the devil did when he led Judas to betray Jesus. He got the ball rolling on his own demise. These people, they are so consumed with the idea that he must have been a liar and his disciples are going to steal him away that they are going to secure something hopelessly, frankly, futilely, sure, but it is going to secure it in such a way that there is no question what took place. And Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. They sealed the stone and they set the guard. And what did it do them? Nothing. It didn't do them any good. Was it to secure men out? Yeah, it was. That's exactly what it was meant to do. And it did that. In fact, we saw that in Mark 16. You'll see it in Matthew 28 as well. But Mary, Mary, and Salome... Two Marys and a Salome. They go to prepare his body more perfectly because Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they had to rush this because it was very close to the Sabbath coming. They put his body in the tomb, but they weren't able to prepare it in a respectful way. And so his mother, Mary, Mary Magdalene and Salome, John's mom, excuse me, they go to prepare the body more perfectly And they go in faith because they ask this question, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? So that they either had no forethought or they walked in faith all the way there. And even after asking this question, they haven't gotten there yet. And they're like, who's going to roll the stone away? The three of us aren't capable of rolling a tombstone away. This was a tombstone, not a tombstone. This was the stone they would roll in front in order to secure and to close up a tomb. It took a lot to move a stone like that. And they just keep going. They go in faith to the tomb. And in Luke 24 and verse 5, they're asked a really interesting question by one of the angels that they meet. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Now, that's a great question for us today, isn't it? How many doors do we open seeking the dead instead of living? We go looking around this world and we look for all the wrong things in all the wrong places. When we have life and we have it more abundantly from Christ. Was it to keep Jesus in? Yeah, it was meant to. Did it work? Nope. And he didn't need angels to roll it away. He was able to do what was necessary on his own. So it didn't really secure men out, though it proved to demonstrate his ability And it didn't really keep Jesus in, though that was, it wasn't really the idea either. It wasn't really to keep Jesus in. It was to keep people out. But you think about the obedience. You know that door of the tomb is not going to move unless Christ is the perfect sacrifice. Unless he is the son of God. If he is not that lamb without blemish and without spot, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19, then he is not the perfect sacrifice. Son of God. And God would not have raised him from the dead. God would have not brought him back. He would have been the charlatan that they claimed he was. But instead, the Lord did raise him 
from the dead. The Lord brought him back to the living. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there were some, obviously, not just in Corinth, but elsewhere, who tried to compromise. And this happens so frequently. Not just, hopefully, well, it doesn't happen in the church at all, but I mean in the brotherhood. But frequently happens in the denominational world, but sometimes in the brotherhood, and that's sad. They make compromises because they feel maybe insecure about the truth. Maybe they feel insecure about, about God's capabilities of doing the things he says he did. And so you get like, you get like theistic evolution. People that believe that God got things started, but inevitably evolution took over. And it's this compromise between what scientists say happened and what the Bible says happened. Well, I don't need scientists to tell me what happened because the Bible tells me what happened. And in fact, if you look through the evidences, they demonstrate that what God says happened, happened. It's the only plausible solution. But we make these compromises, these what people feel are necessary compromises. And some maybe felt ridiculous that they believed in Jesus's resurrection. Well, how ridiculous is that? And people have tried to make it ridiculous today. They talk about Jesus as a zombie. And I mean, by technical definition, depending on how you define zombie, I suppose, but not in the way that people claim. And it feels disrespectful for them to conclude such. They're making light of Jesus's resurrection, and that's uncalled for. And for us to participate in such is not beneficial to the kingdom. But in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is dealing with people who did not necessarily believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And I can hear Christians doing this, or I can hear Members of the Brotherhood doing this. Like, well, you know, maybe he didn't rise from the dead, maybe. And they make these kinds of compromises, and that's not what the, the kingdom teaches. Look at verse 12. He says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Some had taken on the position of the Sadducees that there was no resurrection, that we just live as long as we live on the earth and we try to serve God and then we die and we cease to exist. What in the world? Like, And yet that's where people have come to. That's the compromises that they make because they feel pressured from society, from the situations around them, from people thinking that they're silly or stupid for believing such things. And yet... Sometimes that's what faith is, is holding to things you know that are true because the Bible reveals them. People make compromises to the truth all the time. And, and it's a sad state of affairs when we lose faith in the truth of God's word to the degree that we will make compromises of it. Both indirectly, in Jesus' case here of the tomb, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Yeah. In the same way that he raised Lazarus from the dead, so he rose from the dead. And he spent time there with his disciples. Many people witnessed him, of which even in the New Testament writers, not today, but the New Testament writers say, are even alive unto the day that they were writing. So we read it, we go, oh, unto today. No, they haven't, they're not still alive. That would be super weird. No, but they were alive even to the day that the New Testament writers were writing. Some of them were witnesses themselves, and they conclude that, right? In 1 John chapter 1, that which we have seen, which we have heard, which we have, that your hands have handled concerning the word of life. 
He emphasizes that. And then the fact that they can know that it is true because they themselves were eyewitnesses. And that really speaks to the nature of truth. The door of the temple was not meant necessarily to keep men out. It was a designation of the holiness of God and whether they would resolve to do the will of God or not. The door of the tomb was never meant, could never have kept Jesus in. It was meant to secure the truth so that it could be known that Jesus did rise from the dead, that his body was not removed by anyone else, but that the angels were there witness the soldiers and these women were there immediately. Many more afterwards. And finally, the door that is narrow. And I say that because a gate is a door. I'm calling it. I don't care. Same thing. But in Matthew 7, we just had it read to us. Thank you, Mr. Jason. In Matthew chapter 7. In verse 13, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. It's an interesting concept. Is this door, is this gate to keep men out? No, in fact, it's revealing an opening. And in fact, what does he lead with? Enter! Enter by the narrow gate. It is not intentional. It is not God's intention that he restrict your access or he keep you out. But you must enter by the narrow gate. If you want into this domicile, if you want into this kingdom, you have to enter in the appropriate way. But enter God wants you to do. He does not want to keep you out. In fact, the opposite is true. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering to us. Why? Why is he long-suffering to us? Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It is God's desire that we enter that gate, through that gate, that we can enter unto eternal life, that we can receive that which he has secured for us in his kingdom. But it is necessary that we walk the path. He says there, uh, excuse me, uh, to there, secure the saved within. Is it for that purpose? Yeah. On the path of righteousness, that, that we walk the path that leads to the gate, that we see the value in entering that gate to the degree that even though it's difficult, even though sometimes it requires sacrifice and it can be hard, especially with the world around us telling us all the terrible things. Narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. So obedience is not only important, I would say absolutely essential, necessary. Difficult is the way, he says. Few there are who find it. Even in our culture, we recognize that people talk about a highway to hell and a stairway to heaven, which seems to be the expected traffic. That's exactly what Jesus says. Few there are who are going to find it. So when you feel... Like you're alone doing this? You're not. But that's not unusual. Because there are few who are going to find it. Who are going to pursue it. Who are going to want this to begin with. And who are going to have the longevity to stay the course. Is this necessary for salvation? Entering by this door is absolutely. Look at the alternative. For broad is the way. And wide is the gate. That leads to condemnation. That leads to destruction. 
Many are taking that path. Many throughout this life are going to choose a path that leads them to perish. And yet, the life is available in Christ. The path, though difficult, and the gate, though narrow, is you are capable of walking it. And that is what we are called to do. First John chapter 1 and verse 7, we've talked about this morning. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son cleanses us from all sins. It's a powerful message that calls us to live a different life than what we would have otherwise, than what the world is telling us we should live. We follow the pathways of Christ, and in His path, we find redemption. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. He is the door we talked about last week. He is the door of the sheepfold. If you want in the sheepfold, if you want to be one of His, you've got to enter through that door. And if we can help you to enter through that door today to become a child of God initially through the watery grave of baptism, we can help you with that. We can help you become His, believing on Him, repenting of your sins, confessing Him before men and being washed in the blood of Christ through baptism. And if we can help you to come back to Him, you have but to ask. If we can help you stay the course to remain on the path that leads to righteousness and that takes us to that place in heaven. We can help you with that too. And we'd love to help you in whatever way we can. If you'd let us know, as together we stand and sing.